Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a, a very interesting founder, a founder that has raised, you know, quite a quite an exciting fund. Uh, it's a spin out, you know, from uh, Alphabet. And uh, definitely, you know, we're going to be talking about how some of the moments in your life and decisions that you make, you know, take you in different directions. But definitely, you know, what uh, what this founder is doing and and the and the segment that he's also tackling, you know, there's quite a lot in it, and I'm sure that you're going to find it very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jonathan Weiner. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So originally born in Boston, but raised in Arizona. Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Life growing up was great. Um, I grew up in suburban Arizona, primarily, as, as you mentioned. Um, I grew up in a very academic family. Um, education was really important um, to, to our family, but it was a wonderful place to grow up and a, a great childhood. So in your case, I mean, obviously you had to go to a good university. I mean, having having the academic going on in the family. So you went to Yale, but uh, but it didn't it didn't unfold the way that perhaps your parents had hoped. You know, and I'm sure that uh, making that phone call, you know, was was a tough one. So what happened there? What derailed you from from the plans? It's actually funny. It was it was a tough phone call. You you picked up on that exactly. So you know, um, as as you mentioned, um, when I went to college, I, I was actually myself focused on being an academic. I was studying philosophy. Um, I was planning to spend um, most of my undergrad career doing that and potentially you know pursue a graduate degree in philosophy and, and become an academic. 
Um, and, you know, it's funny. It, it's the most unexpected conversations that really pivot, you know, your great plans. And so um, one evening, uh, one of my roommates uh, who had grown up on the East Coast and, um, you know, in New York City and was really focused on, you know, entrepreneurship and, and, and what his, you know, professional career might look like, came into my room. This is our, our sophomore year, whatever, I'm 19, 20 years old. And says, you know, hey, I think I think we should drop out and I think we should start a software company. This is like, you know, 2000 or 99 or something like that. So, you know, at the time, that was sort of like the, the en vogue thing to do. Of course, it had absolutely nothing to do with my personal plan in life. Uh, my plan of life was to study and go and get a graduate degree. And so, you know, but I, I, you know, there's a little bit of peer pressure in that moment. And I didn't want to be the person who was scared of, of pursuing this thing. And so rather than just say, like, hey, I'm not interested in, in, in doing that, um, I said to him, you know, hey, look, um, unless the following four or five things are true, you know, we had an anchor investor, a, a first customer, you know, we had some, you know, MVP path on, on our engineering and software, you know, it'd be really, really crazy for us to drop out. And remember, we stayed up until, you know, one or two o'clock drinking, drinking bourbon or something. And, you know, eventually it's like, yeah, you're right. It'd be really risky and silly for us to drop out of college to pursue this unless those five things were true. And so I thought that was the end of the conversation. And then about a week later, you know, he came back into my room and he's like, hey, look, great news. I got all five of those things done. I, here's my letter. I dropped out. The other guys who are starting the same with us, they've dropped out. Now it's time for you to take a, a leave of absence to drop out too. So I was kind of coerced into becoming an entrepreneur the first time. But we did that. We, um, I, I dropped out of school. Um, I ultimately went back and finished. But I dropped out of school for a couple of years to focus on, on building a software startup. So what, whatever happened with that software startup? Uh, it's interesting. So, you know, at the time we, we raised our Series A, um, it was focused on natural language processing. And keep in mind, this is you know, 20-something years ago before we had large language models and the current approaches that we have to AI. It was using early neural net technology to sort of focus on, on problems related to natural language processing. And at the time we set out to do that, um, we had absolutely no business raising money. But, you know, it was 2000 and people were, you know, passing out term sheets of the hall at the, at, you know, the computer science department. And so we were able to raise, you know, around and, and, and get things going. Um, you fast forward a couple of years. And it, believe it or not, we had a pretty decent product that actually kind of worked for the application we were looking at. We had an anchor customer. Uh, we were approaching uh, cash flow break even. We were really scrappy. So with just one customer and about to have a second customer, we were sort of at a place where we thought we were going to be very successful in raising our next round. But of course, 2001 happens and, you know, the dot-com, you know, crash, uh, bust, whatever you'd like to call it. And, you know, I, I joke a lot because I, we had no business raising money when we raised money the first time. We, nobody should have given us money. That was a silly thing. But the second time, we should have been able to raise money. But the environment was so different that we actually weren't able to. And so we wound up you know, selling the company in sort of an all-stock deal to a, a, a larger software company, um, which, which was a fine outcome. It wasn't, it wasn't a win for people, but it was a fine outcome um, and went back to school. I mean, obviously, that theme that gave you quite a, a lot of visibility. I mean, not only into into really understanding, you know, what it is, the full cycle of a business, but then also when it comes to market cycles, because right now there's a lot of founders that uh, haven't experienced, you know, a downturn, like, for example, the one that, uh, that we're looking at with this macro environment. So I guess, you know, from taking a look at that and experiencing that, you know, what were some of the lessons that you took away, you know, from, you know, operating a business and, and being in a downturn? You know, particularly for early stage businesses, I think it's true more broadly, but particularly for early stage businesses, the macro environment is just so critical and can turn on a dime. And I think you're right. We've, we've lived in this bull market of roughly the last, you know, call it decade where there was always another round and some of the key metrics 
um, that we, you know, traditionally would look at in early stage technology companies, people have been willing to sort of look away from um, for, you know, because, because there was so much capital moving into the space. Um, and so, you know, I, I think timing is really, really critical. And, you know, I was naive in my first company to think that if we were simply just executing, if the product worked and people were buying it, everything would be okay. But you really are at the mercy of, you know, capital formation. And so being very sophisticated about that, understanding how you're going to cap- raise capital, who you're going to raise capital from, their ability to support you in the event that there is um, a downturn, um, your your investors' um, track record in downturns. You know, one thing that's fascinating to me, and some of the companies that we, we we're currently a part of, you know, um, there are investors that say, you know, other investors might be on the board um, or on the investment committee of, of other institutions at the table that have never been through um, uh, a capital market quite like this. And so I think, you know, if I were a founder, I'd be very thoughtful in making sure that, you know, if I had the choice, I w- I'd probably take capital from folks who have been through a couple cycles and understand how to navigate them. So in your case, you ended up going back to Yale. You got your degree, so I'm sure your parents were happy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a philosophy degree. I don't know how, I mean, you know, I don't know. They spend all this money and all you have is a philosophy degree. I don't know what you do with that, but yeah. <laughs> and, and then basically after that, you 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 ended up in the show, and that was quite pivotal for you. So so tell us what happened there, and, and obviously getting into the investment side, you know, that was a nice push to get on the other side of the table too. It was. You know, we, we'd actually first encountered... Um, D.E. Shaw and their technology ventures group um, when we were trying to exit our software startup. So we'd, that was the first context in which we had had some exposure to them. And, you know, a really an incredible organization. I mean, still to this day and certainly back then um, as, as well. Um, and, and one of the things that was sort of interesting is, is the group that I landed in um, was a, a research group working on problems related to computational biochemistry, uh, where the founder of that organization, um, David Shaw, um, you know, was sort of very personally involved in sort of leading the day-to-day activities. And so that was just an extraordinary opportunity to get exposure to somebody who had built, you know, a, an incredible financial institution you know, over several decades um, to understand how they think about risk um, and risk return, um, to see how they manage organizations. You know, one of the things I, you know, I, I wound up being a part of the founding group there that set up their private equity business. And I can talk a little bit about, you know, some of the lessons learned from all of that. But one of the things that I tell folks, you know, particularly younger folks that are joining their first investment firm, either as an associate or, you know, a senior associate after banking or something like that, to be very thoughtful about where they go, not just because of the brand name of the place or, you know, the signing bonus or whatever motivates people to choose where they they work first, but, you know, where you learn how to invest um, in private, here I'm talking about private equity style investing, um, illiquid, you know, private companies, Um, you know, there are very different ways to do this. This is an apprenticeship business. Um, people understand risk return in fundamentally different ways. And you will be forever shaped in how you see the world and how you think about capital allocation and, and risk return based upon sort of your early career and where you, you developed some of your training. So I think that choice, I, I got very lucky. I stumbled into it. I, I don't think at the time I could have in a sophisticated way described, you know, why Desco was such a such an amazing place and, and why David was such a thoughtful investor. I kind of lucked into it um, and, and, and really got an incredible education in, in how to invest. Now, sort of there's a lot of founders that they are listening and that are very used to the venture capital model and to how venture capital works when it comes to investments. How is private equity different from, let's say, venture capital? How would you define it or, or explain it so that the people that are listening really get it? 
Um, so when I think of, of private equity, I, I think of it as an overall category of allocating capital to illiquid private companies. And within that, there are lots of different sort of sub-asset classes, venture being sort of early stage investing. You can think about growth stage investing, so investing in companies that are, are somewhat more mature. But there are all sorts of various types of quote-unquote private equity style investing. You know, on, on the far extreme, you might have, you know, the leverage buyout of a large public company or a large private company for that matter. Um, but there are other sub-asset classes of that type of investing. Um, real assets is interesting. It, you know, here I'm talking about real estate or infrastructure. You might very well be invested in a private company that is illiquid, um, uh, you know, related to those types of businesses. And that might be a different type of subcategory. But all of these types of strategies, um, I, I sort of think of it within sort of the private equity bucket. That's not exactly how limited partners would carve it up, but, but it is how I've, I've come to evolve over time. One of the things that I think is important is within each one of those sub-asset classes, whether it is venture, whether it is growth or, you know, an LBO shop or distress shop or whatever it is, um, different investors have very different, not just mandates, like what they can invest in or what they're seeking to invest in, but different ways of thinking about risk and return. And if, if you're a founder and you're thinking about raising capital, I think it's really important, not just to understand the individual and their history and to reference them with you know, previous founders that their companies that they've invested in and to understand how long they've been in the business and what their background was, um, but also to understand how their investment committee and how their firm thinks about it. And so if we take venture capital, for example, there's been this real evolution in venture in the last 20 some odd years that I've been you know, involved in it. You know, historically, there were many, many fewer venture capital firms. They were typically staffed by folks who were um, maybe somewhat more senior in their career than they're typically staffed today. Many of those folks were former operators, people, technologists, former CEOs of technology companies, people who had had exits. Um, the idea of a career venture capital investor, someone who came out of college you know, and went into being an analyst program, you know, that didn't exist. And fundamentally, you know, different venture firms would have different stories about value creation to their limited partners. Some might say, hey, we're really hands-on and you know, operational with our founders and able to help them build businesses. Others might say something along the lines of, you know, we have proprietary relationships or a proprietary brand that allows us better deal flow, and therefore we're able to you know, pick companies. There are all sorts of different sub-segments of that. But we've seen that really evolve. Um, today, you know, there are some venture firms, um, early stage and, and maybe even growth stage firms, who think of themselves much more as index funds than as stock pickers. And here I'm using some public markets jargon, but the distinction being, you know, hey, you limited partners, those are the, the sort of the large um, capital allocators that typically fund, um, you know, venture capital firms or other types of private equity firms. You know, you could go over here to fund X. And what FundX tells you is that they have the smartest people around and they're going to pick the best companies and they're going to, and they're specialists. They only know this sector. And so they're going to find the best companies in the sector. That's great. If you want specialized exposure to that sector, go invest in FundX. Our fund, why? Well, what we're promising you is something different, which is we actually don't think we are the best stock picker. We think we have access to the most deal that fall into the following categories. Companies with the following revenue characteristics, the following you know, growth characteristics, following ARR, whatever it is. And we think if you look historically at the data, if you simply had an index, that is, if you had like pro rata like allocations to all the companies that fell within that type of allocation, that that would actually outperform the stock picker. I use this as one sub-example. We could talk, you know, each fund has its own flavor of how it positions itself. But the point is, as a founder, it's really important to know, hey, 
if I'm taking money from fund X and then I have a subsequent round that I need to get done or, you know, there's a turn in the market in the way that we were just talking about a moment ago, how are they going to think about it? They're probably going to be hands-on. They're probably going to look at the very specific things that are going on in my industry and they're probably going to determine, hey, do we think we have product market fit? Do we think we can fund another round based upon the nuances of my company? You know, uh, a more of an index style fund, one that is much more high velocity and trying to index private market companies, you know, might say, hey, look, the metrics are off. That's not, it's not our mandate. Now, I, I, you may have the best turnaround story and maybe you're just six months behind on, you know, your next product development, but the, the metrics are off. And so, you know, just understanding how your investors think based upon what they have told their investors, their mandate is, I think that's something that, that the founders maybe don't do enough of. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in your case, it sounds like when, when now you got into the private equity arena, you know, you really carved uh, yourself an expertise around the energy side of things. So, so walk us through this and, and, and some of the things that you were doing too, especially with, with projects in India. When I got involved in private equity at DE Shaw, um, the firm was in, in, the, in the process of setting up multiple different verticals in private equity. And to the point of this being like an apprenticeship business, a great, great way to learn this business is to work for multiple different senior investors in the space. And so we had somebody who was focused on China and somebody who was focused on India and somebody who was focused on distressed turnaround. And we had a group that was focused on energy as well. Um, and, you know, in each one of these groups, we made lateral hires, sort of senior folks who'd come from other shops who had their own approach to risk return, their own approach to underwriting. And it was really fascinating to be a part of working with all those different teams, part of that investment committee, understanding how capital allocation decisions were being made, um, to just see how differently people thought. But one of the things that was nice about that is it got me exposure to some of the early renewable energy work that was being done in this country. Some of the first um, IPPs, um, wind IPPs that were, were taking place, other types of um, renewable energy IPPs, and also some of the early technology investing, what now is called clean tech 1.0. Um, I also wound up doing some generalist private equity investing 
in in India primarily. And, and it was this weird moment when I started to look at the Indian energy market compared to the American energy market. And so, you know, as we were in, in the U.S., we're trying to make a transition towards renewables. We were effectively a power surplus market, which meant we'd have to turn off, you know, more cost effective thermal power in order to bring on intermittent, more expensive renewable energy. And, yeah, there were, you know, government subsidies and other reasons that we went into from a policy perspective. But that was fundamentally different than what was going on in India at the time. You know, in India at the time, there's just a power deficit. You know, there were roughly 300 million people who didn't have access to power. Um, you know, the, the, the power grid itself, um, you know, relied on very large thermal power with a lot of coal being imported through from Indonesia, which was starting to be harder and harder to do. Power costs were going up. The distribution grid was incredibly challenged. So there were huge line losses as you tried to bring centralized power out into the more rural communities. And so some of the technologies like solar and wind that could be more distributed and co-located closer to end users were actually economic on their own without subsidies in India at a time that in the U.S., you know, they really weren't. Um, now, this has changed in very meaningful ways as the cost, mobilized cost of energy of some of these technologies has come down. But, you know, solar is 20 cents per kilowatt hour. You know, it was expensive um, back then. And so that was certainly the case. And so I got super excited about the opportunity for renewable energy um, investing in India. Um, at, when I was at the Isha, we made one of the first investments um, in that space um, in India and, and really got to understand the energy markets there, which operate very differently, obviously, than in the U.S. Um, but, yeah, I was, was super excited about the, the huge potential for renewable energy in India. This is you know, going back to like 2008. So tell us about connecting with Larry Page. And for those that, uh, you know, doesn't sound familiar, the, the founder of Google, eh? one of the founders of Google, uh, now known as Alphabet. Yeah. So um, I had wound up spinning out of the Isha and, and starting an alternative energy um, infrastructure fund in, in India, um, investing in that thesis that I just described to you for, you know, gosh, almost a decade. And, um, you know, I, I, the the fund that I was a part of, the general partnership was determining whether I wanted to go out and raise another fund um, or not. And, you know, my wife and I were thinking about, you know, having a child and Going back and forth to India and raising uh, a fund is not necessarily conducive to being a super present uh, father. And so, um, you know, made the decision that I wanted to come back to the U.S. Um, and, and really focus the rest of you know, my career here primarily. Um, and, you know, had no idea what I wanted to do, to be honest. You know, I, you know I, for a while, I was like, hey, I'll be a full-time dad for a while. It'd be really nice. And, you know, maybe I'll do some angel investing on the side or something like that. But never really focus, uh, trying to think about what I'd want to do next um, and, and take some time to do it. And through a friend who um, worked um, uh, with Larry at, at Alphabet, um, wound up getting connected to him in a couple different sort of more social occasions. And at the time, he, you know, he was um, thinking a lot about the challenges that cities face, and in particular, how technology could be manifest in the physical world in a way that could fundamentally alter the urban environment, make it more sustainable, make it more resilient, make it more inclusive. And you know, Alphabet had a long track record when it came to digital technologies. They're obviously a, a tremendously successful at scaling digital technology. You know, they had a far less experience. They had, they had some, to be clear, they had fiber and other things. But, you know, fundamentally had, had less innovation in, in physical assets than they had in, in, in digital assets. And so he was in the process of thinking about what he ultimately stood up as what's now called an other bet. So sort of a, a group within Alphabet that's, that's not part of Google. Um, sometimes people call them the moonshots or, or other things um, that was focused on this question of could you design an urban environment in a, in a fundamentally different way? Um, it's called Sidewalk Labs. 
And so I was part of the, the early team that sort of set that up. So what is it like to pitch Larry Page on, on an idea or to even pitch yourself, you know, as a candidate to, to execute on something that they have going on? I, I don't know because I didn't go into it thinking it was a pitch meeting. So I wasn't pitching, and to be, <laughs> to be honest. To be honest. Um, but, what, but what I will say about my first couple of conversations with Larry, that they got me really excited about what they were doing there. And, and even some once I was there, some of the early ideation sessions that we had in terms of figuring out what we were going to do. Um, you know, Larry was an incredibly thoughtful, um, intellectual provocateur. And, and by that, I mean, he would often start with a really fundamental premise of like, what if blank? What are all the sort of follow-on implications of that fundamental trans transition? I remember being in a, a brainstorming session with him early in the, in the Sidewalk Labs um, days where, you know, he asked this question of, you know, if you had an AV-only environment, so this is early Waymo days where we're still proving out the efficacy of, of, of AVs, and he's already asking the question, well, wait, imagine a world where there are no legacy vehicles for a moment, no human-driven vehicles. There are just AVs. And if that were the case, how would you design a city differently? And of course, there are like, Lots of things that you do differently. You can make a far more pedestrian forward city. You could have outer ring roads that, you know, operate much more quickly, but much slower where pedestrians could interact with vehicles. You could fundamentally change how you do things like logistics and delivery. You fundamentally change how you do public transit. There are like 30 different foundationally different things you would do in designing an urban environment. You think about density in a radically different way. Um, if that were true. Now, we can all debate whether or not that's going to happen or when that's going to happen. But actually, free, like starting with a, a provocative premise like that and ideating around what things would change, even if you have to scale back that, that you know, sort of first principle vision um, and sort of think about innovation um, in, in a more practical way, it, it, it's a highly effective way of, of forcing people to sort of leave their preconceived notions at the door, so to speak, and, and to engage in, in really first principles ideation. So, you know, I remember a few conversations like that with him that were really formative to, you know, to Sidewalk Labs and, and some of the innovation that we, we focused on there. So what was it like the, um, because you guys ended up, ended up doing a spin out uh, of, uh, of the company. So what happened there? I mean, how did that come about? Well, you know, we, we at Sidewalk Labs were focused on on a very large scale um, greenfield mixed use uh, real estate development in or right outside of Toronto in an area called called the Portlands. Um, it, it's, it's a project that got a lot of press and, um, you know, ultimately um, didn't go forward during COVID. But at the time, we were really thinking a lot about, you know, a, a multi-decade project, which was going to be fabulously um, complex and fabulously expensive and trying to think about how to structure and organize, um, you know, uh, the company, Sidewalk Labs, um, to, to execute on that project. And, and they re really ultimately came out of three different types of businesses. On the one hand, you had innovation businesses, um, literally technology development companies um, or business units within Sidewalk Labs. You had, you know, real estate, the actual development of vertical real estate, and you had the enabling infrastructure um, things like roads and power grids, water systems, digital infrastructure, so you know connectivity and other things. Um, each one of those businesses is fundamentally different. It's fundamentally different skill sets. It's fundamentally different cost of capital. You innovate in fundamentally different ways. And so the uh, uh, Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners, my my, my current platform, uh, was really born out of hey, how could you set up a vehicle that could you know generate. Um, next generation infrastructure systems that are more sustainable, more resilient, more inclusive, and finance them and bring them to scale in a thoughtful way. What skill sets would you need? What team would you need? What type of capital would you need? 
Um, so we really focus on that. And it, it, it turns out that that problem isn't just applicable to the context of sort of a greenfield development um, in Toronto, but rather there, there are specific problems within cities today that we can address, um, you know, using in, in innovation. So, so that, that was really the origin of SIP. So I guess uh, for the people that are listening to really understand, you know, what you guys are doing at Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners, also SIP, to make it easier, what what are you guys doing? And, and essentially, you know, from a 30,000 foot view, and what makes you different from everyone else? Yeah, you know, I use, what we're doing is we're applying technology to critical infrastructure systems. Um, so things like power networks or power grids, uh, road networks, water generation, digital infrastructure. Um, and we're trying to build infrastructure in a way that is more um, efficient, more inclusive, more sustainable, more resilient. Um, as a result of leveraging technology. And I, I usually would answer this question in a slightly different way, but since earlier in this conversation, we um, we had this conversation about understanding different types of um, investors. Um, you know, if, if you today have an idea for, you know, a new sustainability technology, there are plenty of early stage, you know, venture capitalists, like we spoke about before, who will write you a series A or a series B term sheet to develop a new mobility technology or new energy efficiency technology or, or whatever the case may be. But, but fundamentally, those investors, for the most part, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, are, are looking to find asset light businesses. Um, they're, you know, they're not looking to deploy large scale amounts of capital into building physical assets. Because the return profile of physical assets can't possibly meet their venture return benchmarks. You know, you're not going to get 100x on building a power plant, um, even if it uses the best technology, you know, you, you can find. On the flip side, if you do want to build, you know, sustainable infrastructure and you have proven technology or you have operating projects at scale, there are plenty of, you know, core plus or sometimes called value added infrastructure investors who will write you the billion-dollar check or acquire a multi-billion-dollar operating asset or whatever the case may be. But that middle, how you take technology that still needs to be demonstrated at scale, deploy it um, in, 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 in the real world and ultimately scale it up, and, and particularly when that requires a fair amount of innovation, both on the engineering side but also on, on, on the contracting side, um, there really aren't that many you know, organizations you know, operating companies like ours or investment firms that are, are focused on that sort of missing middle. And so that's, that's really where we are focused and what we do. And, and the way we do that is we stand up development platforms. Uh, we, we currently have five um, that are focused on next generation infrastructure and, and doing that similar to what we did back with renewable energy all the way back at DE Shaw, you know, asking the question of, hey, how can we prove this technology is effective? How can we deploy it in the field and, and how can we scale it up in, in a capital efficient way? Now, in this in this regard, you know, when when you're thinking about, you know, an operation like this, and and also the way that you deploy uh, capital and 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 grow all this all these different initiatives that that you have, I mean, how do you guys think about that? You know, this is also a little bit of a lesson from some of the the work dating that we talked about, dating all the way back to both the Shaw when we started a whole private equity group, and then when we when we were setting up Sidewalk Labs. You know, we started with a bit of a, a blank sheet of paper. Rather than saying, like, this is how an infrastructure fund does this, this is how a technology company does this, this is how a venture capitalist does this, and then sort of mimicking the processes and the approaches that other people use, we started with a blank sheet of paper and said, the things that we want to actually manifest in the real world, these, these innovation platforms, you know, what is true of them? How long do they take? How do they use capital? Where's the risk? Um, and what type of risk are you taking at various different points of time? And we basically designed a team, um, a process, 
an underwriting approach, an operating model that is, you know, borrows from lots of different things. It borrows from, you know, how other vets thought about technology risk. It borrows from how we did project finance all the way back at, you know, my, my Indian alternative energy fund. Um, but it borrows from those things and designed our own process. Um, so, you know, we're incredibly thematic in our approach. We're not calling investment banks and asking them to send us a, a, a SIM. Um, you know, we'll, we'll hear founder pitches, but the way fund, we fundamentally are not spending most of our time taking founder pitches. We're fundamentally spending most of our time exploring areas of infrastructure, understanding how technology can transition them to be more sustainable, um, more resilient, and more inclusive, developing what we call a digital master plan around where the engineering risk, where the policy risks, where the contracting risks lie. And then only after having done all that thematic work, are we asking the question of like, how do we do a deal or how do we build a company in this space? Um, and, and we've done everything from incubating companies to carving companies out of, of larger companies to um, acquiring companies and assets. So we're, we're sort of tactically agnostic, but we start from a very thematic place. So I guess um, if you were to go to sleep tonight, Jonathan, and you wake up in a world where the vision of SIP is fully realized, what does that world look like? Um, you know, what that looks like is um, SIP is a holding company that, that holds several different um, infrastructure development companies. And, you know, I, I really think a lot about what, what I think of as infrastructure 2.0. So like in roads, there were companies like um, Transurban or Sintra who are road operators. And they might be infrastructure 1.0, but they're not particularly technologically sophisticated. You know, we own a road company and its fullest manifestation might be version 2.0 of that that has a far more technology enabled road. Um, you might think about a peaker power plant. And there are a lot of peaker power plants operated by um, various folks in this country, um, we would think a lot about, you know, version 2.0 of that, which might be more of a virtual power plant um, or, or, or sort of a, a distributed aggregation of grid edge flexibility. So, you know, my vision is we would own infrastructure development companies that have proven themselves to be version 2.0 of sort of smarter infrastructure systems. So I've been asking you now here about the future, but I want to ask you about the past and doing so with a lens of reflection. So let's say I put you into the time machine and I bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to your time at Yale, maybe that moment where you were thinking about dropping out of school. Let's say you had the opportunity of going there and whispering to your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I mean, the, well, the one piece of advice would be do it, because at the time I was very ambivalent about the decision of whether or not to do it. And I sort of went back and forth on that for some period of time. Um, in terms of like a specific piece of advice to somebody at that stage of their um, career, thinking about starting a business, I, you know, I think I'd be incredibly careful about who the few first few experienced people that you bring on either the team or the board are. So when we had, when we, when we formed that company, it was a bunch of folks dropping out of college, we were young folks. And so we we're all equally, you know, ignorant about what we didn't know, which is actually sometimes a very powerful thing to not know some of the things that you're sort of up against. You know, our very first board members and our very four, first sort of more senior experienced hires came with a lot of perspective. And you are obviously at that point in your career, you know, very, uh, influenced by the perspective of, of the folks that, you know, 
bring that experience early on. And so just being very, very thoughtful about who those folks are, um, both anchoring to it because you need to benefit from that wisdom, but also realizing that, you know, if you're starting a company at that stage in your career, you're not going to be the wisest company. So you better be the most nimble, you must be the most directed, the most something else um, and not over anchor to it either. I love it. So, Jonathan, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, email. It's just jonathan at sidewalkinfrastructure.com or sidewalkinfo.com. Excuse me. You see, you know, you see, you know. Well, hey, Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.